Welcome back to another episode of the TD Pod. Once again, it's been a few months, uh, but that's because it's the off season. We deserve a little bit of a break. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Possible, you told me earlier you liked it a lot, or you were just almost there. Where were you with it? I, I, I gave it two and a half stars on my uh, letterbox profile. Uh, my wife loved it. I was a little bit so-so uh, uh, on it, mostly because I loved the new. Uh, I loved the newest Mission Impossible's, the three new ones that came out over the past ten years or so, and I thought this one was a step down, but still worth seeing. I think in the age of all the Marvel crap, I'm probably going to lose a bunch of listeners. We're, we're going to lose so many listeners from me saying Marvel crap. But I think it's a clear step above like that stuff because they're doing stuff practically. It looks good on screen. But I was a little bit disappointed, but I think it's still worth seeing. So anyway, that's my Mission Impossible I take. I, I, you won't, I, mean, I won't go on too long of a rant for that, but you and I are probably pretty close in the same <laughs> wheelhouse on um, – superhero movies i'm just <laughs> i need somebody to die in a movie like I'm, I'm ready for that to happen like i need somebody to die and for it to stick and i need it to be more than just like one superhero at the end of a very long at the end of a very very long like, right. art i need right. to get back to like people just like dying in movies like how people die in real life that would be awesome like a story so, in one movie instead of it needing to interconnect to 17 other movies and yeah gotcha and uh, i'm, I'm yeah. with you there all right well we're gonna get after it obviously to start talking about baylor and big 12 football here um, last time we did one of these, I'm pretty sure that our last episode, Jeff, was just after the spring game. Does that sound right to you? Yes, that was after spring game. Okay, so that the whole theme of that episode was obviously just kind of like, you know, the spring game is your first evidence of what this this falls team was going to look like. Um, before that, it was a ton of speculation, but once you see it in the spring game, obviously it's 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 vanilla, it's bare bones, but. Uh, we learned a ton about what uh, the new guys are going to look like, especially with the infusion of the transfers who are starting all over the place. So I kind of wanted to just, you know, ask you, Jeff, off the bat, um, vibe check for now. And is there any reason to kind of meaningfully feel different in July versus how we felt in March or whenever they fin- finished up spring ball? Or is it just like if you're thinking any differently, it's because you just got too much time on your hands? Well, I there's not much you can really learn I, I, between spring between spring ball and the start of summer camp. There's just unless you're in the building, it's you right. don't you don't have much to go on. I mean every every single every single program has the story of the guy that you know has been drinking kegs and been squatting like multiple <laughs> kegs over his shoulders, and now all of a sudden he's bulked up and he's added you know three plates worth to his squat. Like every program has the story of the guy that's like suddenly buff and all this kind of stuff. It's just. Until you until you see probably by the second to third week of summer camp, you don't really know what you have. Now the the people in the in the building, they probably have a very good idea what um, which rooms they feel comfortable in. And so what I mean by that is the head coach and the and the coordinators down to the position coaches, they all can kind of look around in their weekly team meetings and go, we feel really comfortable about our offensive line room, or we feel extremely comfortable about our linebacker room, or we feel super comfortable about X, Y, or Z. Um, we don't know, you know, they're never going to say that out loud. Um, they're just not, that's not something that, that they're going to come out and say, well, this group is awesome, but this group stinks. Like, that's just not, that you're, you're a bad coach if you say that publicly at the college level. It's different at the pros, but at the college level. You know, you can't really do that organizationally. So we don't really know a lot more. Um, and I would caution fans from getting too far into the weeds on that. But the rumor mills, I will say, are more positive on the run game than they were even back in the spring. I, the I think people are very excited about the possibility of what this run game could be 
um, perhaps fully loaded and fully baked in in a way that we haven't quite seen it yet. Yeah, and we're going to really kind of dive into the offense later because um, I have an article coming out, probably going to be a two or three parter because it ended up being, you know, it took me five hours to write. It's super long. But basically I'm arguing that this offense is going to be a top 20 unit this year. Um, but I'm going to save kind of diving into the offense for that later. Uh, of course, I already kind of typed out a 10 part itinerary for this pod, but I already thought of a new question. I want to go ahead and ask you right now, Jeff. Um, it makes me think of, so last year I can remember when I was able to go to a lot of the kind of post-practice sessions with Aranda in the spring. And then this continued into the fall, he kind of kept reverting back to talking about how he was concerned about the maturity of the team. Um, and I, as a kind of a, I guess, a more of an optimist on Baylor football, I interpreted that as, hey, it's really great that Aranda is worried about this because it means that they're focusing on leadership and it's going to get fixed. Of course, that didn't happen last year. It was just that the maturity issues that he identified last spring persisted throughout the entire season and really is kind of, I think, if you had to pinpoint one issue for Baylor last year, I think that was probably it. Uh, culture, leadership, all that kind of stuff that goes into that. I'm curious, you know, um, whether you've identified, do you get the sense from, I think you were able to listen to his press conference at Big 12 Media Days, and just from anything else you've heard from either him or others, is there any kind of, do you get the sense that there's like a one or a two things that they feel like they need to get over the hump this year as far as what they're most concerned about at this point? Well, you're always most, I mean, I, in terms of concern, I don't know for a certainty. My guess is really there are two things that kind of stand out. One is what does the wide receiver room do? You know, the, the running back room feels complete in a way the wide receiver room does not now there are a lot of guys that have a lot of skill um in the wide receivers room but we don't really know we don't really know who the which one of those guys is going to like take a step up who's going to be able to stay healthy you know if baldwin could stay healthy throughout the course of the year that's a great sign but because of his size that has been problematic for him to be able to stay healthy um i think that's one room i think that's probably one area right now again not dogging the the uh, skill of those of those guys just whether or not they're going to be able it's a big to question it. yeah it's a big question and then the second one that i would have would be a uh, cornerback you know i don't my biggest schematic i have no idea what they're going to do really comes down to what to the cornerback position um, i'm fascinated to see what they really do in september like where do they play those guys on standard downs what do they ask them to do on passing downs uh, i feel pretty comfortable with what they have um, at the safety spot but cornerback to me particularly is very much a I I really just don't know what to expect coming into it. So the staff probably is also I mean not that the staff would ever listen to this, but the staff might also hear this and go, man, this guy has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. I'm jacked to the tits about cornerback and this other room that he doesn't know about is the big concern. Um, you know, right. we really don't know that. But from the outside, those are the two rooms that kind of make me go, you know, work in progress. Which is obviously a concern. I mean, I think a lot of teams, well, I think, you know, we can get into this later, but I think Baylor's floor is pretty high this year, given what they have on the, uh, from their offensive run game. And then probably what I think they're going to have up front defensively too. Um, it's just, you know, I, a lot of teams, the difference between whether you're just good or average versus whether you become great or elite is how good your skill ends up being on both sides of the ball, wide receivers, defensive back. So that's obviously a huge question and probably not one you want to be your biggest question going into the season, but that's just the way it is for Baylor this year. Yeah, I'd agree. I think a lot of when it comes to skill position players, it's very important for people to realize like that really a lot of that comes down just to just to age. You know, yeah. if you go back and look at TCU, I mean, 
TCU TCU last year had 22 and 23 year olds at the most important positions all across both sides of the ball. They just, you know, their their cycle lined up last year in a really big way. In the same way that Baylor's cycle lined up in a really good way at some really key positions in 21. You know, it's just we can look at those guys and just go, okay, you've got another year under you. All of a sudden, we it's we have an expectation that they're going to be able to take a step. We just need to see what they can do. Yeah, a lot of times it's like you you know you uh, you can't see it until you see it, and that's yeah. you know where I think people who actually have to do projections and hopefully we've merited at least a little bit of uh, of worthwhileness there. It's not hopefully we can avoid the fate. I feel like it's like most of mainstream media. It's like you can just make projections, and it doesn't matter whether you're ever right or wrong. You just kind of get stuck in your position. I don't want that yeah. to be me and you, Jeff. I want us to actually be good at projecting. So hopefully, whatever we end up saying this <laughs> this off season actually ends up showing out a little bit. All right, let's dive into this here. Um, so, oh yeah, okay. So I inter- interjected. So first of all, we can uh, bring uh, talk about this later if we want, or talk about it now. Whatever your preference is, Jeff. But I think if I recall correctly on our vibes checked, I looked at the spring game and said this feels like an eight win team to me. And I think you said nine. Is that does that sound right right to you? That sounds that sounds right. Any any reason that you would change your opinion on that from from a couple months ago? I might go down to eight just because I think I feel more positive about some of the other teams in conference mm-hmm. than I did. But in terms of the quality of the team itself, I, I really don't. I, like my, you know, we don't have, again, we don't have that much new information. So I, I think not eight to nine is, is right in line of where, with where I would have them right now. And I, I would stick with that. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think I'm kind of sticking where I'm at. And I, I also agree that I think it's for similar reasons as you. I mean, there is no Kansas in the league this year. Kansas is like arguably as good as Baylor this year. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, I bet there's probably a lot of media members who might even put Kansas above Baylor. So um, the worst team kind of, th- I think when you looked at the poll points, the resoundingly bottom team was West Virginia, which for as much as West Virginia has kind of become a middling team under Neil Brown, they haven't ever been a disaster. Um, it's been a disaster yeah. to West Virginia fans because mediocrity, mediocrity and subpar, you know, fighting for bowl eligibility has been a disaster for those fans. But it's not like they've been a two-win team or something. I actually can't remember how many wins they had last year, but I don't think they're really a two-win team. So my point being, like, once again, there are no bad teams in the league, except for now instead of 10, I mean, there's 14 teams. I mean, there is there are no cakewalks in this league. Yeah. Okay. Um, next part here. Um, what did you learn from your missed projections last year? I, I know that applies more to me than to you because I think you were always very, very clear on your caveats of like, I expect this unit to be good. I expect this unit, but wide receiver play could doom Baylor last year. And I think that's kind of what ended up happening. However, I think both of us, uh, obviously missed on the defense. We, I mean, it was, it wasn't really Aranda's defense. It was Roberts's defense. But if you, if you were to attribute the defense to Aranda, it was by far his worst ever unit. And like, it wasn't even close. I mean, the defense just collapsed. I think we're 119th on third down conversion rate last year. Yeah. 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 It's always, I I always, I, I, I like to post this whenever this happens, but it's always nice when like the, the stats match the fan perceptions. Cause so many times it feels like I'm using stats to counter fan perception, but fan perception was like, we're terrible on third down. And then you look at the stats and we're literally like the second to worst team in the country on third on passing down. So that made sense. But anyway, um, I, I guess, you know, for me, 
when I think about what I missed on defense last year, it was obviously just like the importance of good leaders, culture, toughness, you know, cohesion with the coaching staff, all that kind of stuff. But I also look at it and say, you know, it's really difficult to be able to grok that from the outside. Um, you know, you can kind of read the tea leaves if you want, but I'm not really sure how much we could have done to know that that collapse was coming last year. So anyway, what do you take from that collapse last year? Is there anything you're kind of applying to your analysis this year? Well, for me, it's it's a it, it's a question of uh, Aranda's organizational ability, and this is not a knock against him. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm going to use the analogy of the Celtics this past year. You know, people looked at the Boston Celtics and they looked at that team and they thought, man, they really underperformed in um, by losing to the Heat in um, the conference finals. Like, you know, if they'd had a better coach, they would have done better. But really, like, that's not that coach's fault. The coach that got fired for having an affair with a staffer in October and left the organization without any ability to hire at a high quality level, like that's the reason that they didn't succeed in the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, there is no coach on the face of the earth that starts their job and is as good now as they are five years from now. They, there's a fundamental requirement for um, experience that you just you fundamentally cannot get without just going through it. It does not matter whether you're running a Dairy Queen to quote Mark Cuban or you're running, you know, the entirety of Baylor football or you're coaching the Boston Celtics. And so Aranda has kind of had to speed run through, you know, 2020 was the craziest first year a head coach could ever have. Then they went to, you know, the Sugar Bowl. He thought he had it all figured out. And then you know, he's, I think that he had a very good reason for running his current management style or leadership style into 2022. And that just didn't work out. Um, and I think for that reason to, to make it, to, to give people a little bit more context, one of the things that, just, that Matt Rule did and was adamant about was that they, Rule was fanatical about the belief that upperclassmen had to do the job of policing the entire team. Not every coach is that way. In fact, lots of coaches, to be frank, disagree with that approach in twenty in the 2020s. Um, but Matt Rule, like that was Matt Rule's thing. His, his goal was to make those guys mentally tough the way that he understood the concept of mental toughness and then to put the ownership of leadership onto the senior um onto the senior guys and that worked out you know 2020 was just a disaster in general but that worked out really well in 2021 they had great senior leaderships that was there those guys had brought up had been brought up under the rule system they knew how to step up and take that leadership position and then when 2022 rolled around there was this void of, uh, of that uh, senior leadership and aranda because he's not rule and that's not a negative that's just a difference in management styles but because he wasn't rule he hadn't built those guys up there was not that next level or that next group of people to really kind of take over and you saw that throughout the year in terms of how just to be blunt, how lazy some of the guys were on plays. Like we would go back and watch tape and I'm, I'm not going to point any names because these are college kids, but you would go back and watch some of the plays. And it's like, this guy's not even trying. Like, right. He's not, he's not. And it was really evident trying. too, because yeah. the, the nice thing about football is that you oftentimes can get a direct care comparison to what it looks like when they actually are trying, like maybe even yes. the next snap. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah. it becomes really yeah. obvious. Yeah. yeah. And so that and that wasn't across the board, but you had you had a, more than one or two guys that were just 
Right. I mean, football, football isn't a sport where you can have seven out of 11 guys playing as hard as possible. You need 11 out of 11 every play. Like, it, it, that's, it's coaching cliche, but, like, it's like an army. Like, you can't be charging at the front while your flank is sitting on their behind. And, and so it requires that kind of mass mobilization. 100%. And so the, to, speed, to, to turn that into this year, um, Aranda has, again, because of the way that Aranda adapts, you know, he is, for, for those that don't know, Aranda basically has a self-summarization that he goes through. I want to say it's in December, but it may be in January, where he looks over what he's done over the past year, looks for where he wants to improve, basically almost writes out a, a, a plan to address those specific issues for the next year, and then works on implementing a very small subset of everything. Like, he's trying to change one or two things at a time so that he can iterate and get better. Um, through his approach. And one of the things he decided to do this year was um, take a very strong hand in the leadership and the management of the team, much stronger than he ever had. So he has been very hands-on. Um, I, I have heard I have heard from two different people say that it is a, a very different Aranda in terms of his um, discipline in the program. Not that it was undisciplined prior, but that there is a this is how it is. You're going to do this or you will not play and you will not be on the team aspect. And that that is just kind of across the board. So um, I, I am very hopeful that those issues probably are solved running into this year. Um, that it seems to be, that seems to be something that he addressed in a big way. And I want to reiterate this. It's not, it's not good or bad that, that issue cropped up last year. I think that fans, again, fans have a tendency to just look at it and assume because so few of us actually know what it's like to be in the building um, that we just kind of have this assumption that like every coach is the perfect coach or the best coach at all time because they play for your team. So why wouldn't you have the best coach on your team and you get this built in self bias, but you know, coaches get better and coaches adjust as, as things change. Like that's what the best coaches do. That's what Belichick does. That's what Saban does. Those guys look at the way they are running their organizations and they adjust to meet what the latest demands are. So I am, I'm optimistic about that going forward. Um, I think that that's, I think that's just going to be, I don't see a lot of downside to that. And also this is not in the last thing I'll say on this this is not something that probably would have worked well two years ago because those guys came up under rule and they had a certain expectation of how they wanted to be managed. And so you know, it's hard to say that this specific approach would have worked really well with the rule system because those guys were so used to being led by senior leadership and having those guys be able to run them around. Um, as, as one story I'll say on that, there was a guy, I can't remember his exact name, um, I believe it was at the 2019 season, that was a really good player. And he was loafing on the practice field, and one of the seniors came up to him and said, "If you don't want to be here, just leave." And the guy and the guy decided he didn't want to be there because he didn't want to get yelled at, and he transferred out. And the coaches just let him go because that was that's what the, that's what that staff wanted. They wanted those guys to be able to manage them, manage themselves. So. Yeah, I think this leads into the, the next topic we want to cover, which is just like any reactions from media days. Uh, I didn't listen to every interview that was done with the players. I did listen to TJ Franklin's. Um, and it was interesting because he basically I don't remember what the exact quote is. This is paraphrasing, but he basically had this section where he talked about how he felt like one of the major things that went wrong last year is basically just that the knuckleheads were running the asylum in the sense of he was like, look, I was confident in myself. I knew how to prepare, I knew how to play, but I didn't really want to be an enforcer whenever other people were um, acting up. And he said basically this year the biggest thing he's changed for himself is just you know flipping that switch in the sense of 
you know, when you, when you enforce rules, it's, you know, through discipline, you get freedom, um, and, and through discipline, you get greatness. And so I think that's been interesting to see and whether, and I think kind of how optimistic you feel about that is, you know, a, why didn't he feel that way last year? I mean, every person's different. Everyone's leadership journey is different. Um, but I think in TJ's, in Franklin's, uh, explanation of that, I think you can kind of push that onto the rest of the team. I think there were very few guys that you could tell felt comfortable being top dog leaders. I think Doyle was one that you could tell probably was pushing those around him at all times. Um, but hopefully more of those guys kind of take that mantle as far as being able to both not just push themselves, but push others. Because I do think what was interesting about last year was that there were quite a few upperclassmen, but then there were basically no middle class and it was all a bunch yeah. of young guys. And I think yeah. from the outside and from all the comments, all off scene is these, and it, it definitely seems like too many of the young guys got, you know, too big for their britches and weren't listening to old guys. And then the old guys kind of like Franklin were saying, didn't feel comfortable policing them. And so uh, the knuckleheads ran the asylum. Yeah. I think that's accurate. Okay. Uh, did you have any other reactions from anything else you heard at media day? I mean, I know uh, I listened to um, Dave's press conference. I didn't think it was, there wasn't really too much there. He had a nice little section when somebody asked him about Powledge, um, which I think we're going to talk about when we get into the yeah. defense at the end of the podcast, but anything else from anything else you heard at media days, whether it's Baylor or any other team? No, I will. The, I will also, I'm going to stay, stick specific to, um, I'm going to stick specific to Baylor because I, I, I saw a handful of some other stuff. I, I didn't see a lot, to be frank. I just media <laughs> honestly, days, my like, biggest takeaway was like, "Holy crap!" Yeah, there are four new teams here. Like, there are so many teams to cover. Now. <laughs> there's so many teams here, um, and it's the yeah, it's it's tough to know exactly what all you're going to get at media day. I mean, media day is really media day. The only thing media day is really going to tell you is what is the what is the attitude that the coach is trying to instill in the team, right? And not to this is not to go off on a Joey tangent, but like when you, when you hear the tech kids and you hear Joey talk, yeah. it's so different than the way the Baylor guys and the Baylor guys talk. And the only thing you can really get a sense of is what is the coaching at it? Cause they're all saying the same thing. Like everyone is saying the same thing. The question is how do you get, um, or like, what do you, what are these individual teams? What is the, what is the feel that the coach is trying to instill in them? for the year that's almost always the only thing i can take up and to be honest when i watched when i watched aranda's i was so taken aback i didn't i had not realized um i knew his dad had been sick i had not realized his dad had passed Mm -hmm. um so to see him kind of right there and to hear him talk about that just you could tell that his head was for really good reasons his head and his heart were like not there all the way i think and so it just I, there's not much I took out of it, to be frank. I, everything sounded very generic. Everything sounded very like, oh, this sounds like a Dave Aranda kid. Um, the only thing I will say is that they had a bit of a um, do-your-job mentality, which is a Nick Sabanism that he is obsessed with. And this is not saying that... that <laughs> this is not saying that Aranda's going to turn to Nick Saban. I just... That, that was notable to me that 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 theme was much stronger this year than from the guys that I had heard prior, which was like, know your job, do your job, know your job, do your job. That's right. what I'm focused on knowing my job and doing my job. That, that seemed to be a little bit more deeply ingrained this year um, than anything else. Know your job, know your job, do your job, play green. Like, yeah, I think I've heard every coach say play green, play green, play green, like nonstop in every single clip and everything else I've seen. Like that seems to really be the focus. And if you can't play green, 
then they're just going to start yanking kids off the field if they can't play that way. Yeah. I think one of my other major takeaways from from everything I've heard this offseason is, I guess one of my concerns, um, and I, I don't, I'll just explain myself. I don't really think it's right to call it a concern, but it's just something to watch. Um, they've spent a lot of time talking about last year, and I think that's because 95% of the questions that are coming from us in the media are about what happened last year, which I think is natural. Uh, it was so obviously kind of a massive step back compared to the year prior that you know it's our job from analyzing the team from the outside and obviously it was the coach's job this offseason which started before spring ball to figure out what happened and how to implement changes but of course at some point you got to just flip the switch and i think the organization itself has almost you know surely they've uh, flipped the switch they're not thinking about last year anymore but the questions that coming from the media are still asking about last year so much so I, I will be curious to see how well the players and the and the organization are able to basically kind of clear it when it comes to last year uh, and move forward towards this upcoming season. I it's a fair question. I would say that that lasts till the end of the first game. I mean, right. once you get through the first game and the, you know that we're we're just like, okay, what are we talking about with Utah? Well, do we want to talk about last year? Or do we want to talk about Utah. So I think it's just they've got to get through the first game and um, really kind of see what this new run game looks like. I think that's the that that and what does the defense look like they're not going to show that much on tape yet but they're going to get through those two things and we're going to get to utah and then i think it'll be gone to be honest gotcha okay unless it's a disaster on, bo- on both games but I right don't know. <laughs> be shocking if it's a disaster okay um and this kind of ties into media days too because it gets into my uh the quotes from from aranda when he's talking about shaping but i kind of wanted to carefully bring this point up because i always think it's awkward to psychoanalyze people from the outside um, but another kind of concern that I have is we we talked about this last year that during broadcast, you'd hear all these quotes from Jeff Grimes talking about how, you know, Shapin is like the best thing since sliced bread and he's fantastic. And if we can just get him going and get him confident that he's going to be great and hearing a lot of quotes from Miranda talking about Shapin's kind of uh, maturation as a leader and growth as a leader and all this kind of stuff. And. I guess one of the questions it brings to mind to me is how much of this is going to be organic for for Blake Shapin to potentially have grown as a leader versus like how much of it could potentially be like wish casting from the coaches trying to basically, you know, force that onto him, if that makes sense. And I guess really only time will tell. Um, but I think that's going to be an interesting storyline to watch because so much of what happened last year got laid at the feet of lack of leadership. And I think, you know, Blake Shapin kind of openly stated he failed as a leader last year. And the coaches talked about how that wasn't his natural. It's not his natural mode of being to be very outgoing, like a Gary Bohannon or something like that. So it'll be interesting to see whether that narrative continues into the fall, because I think ultimately what matters is how good he is on the field. Right. Um, so it, I, that's just kind of something else I have my, have my eyes and ears on. I, I don't know if you have any reactions to that, Jeff. Um, I really, the only thing I would add on to that, I, I think it's a good point. I, it's Quarterback leadership is one of those things that you hear through snippets that come out. It's very difficult to judge that when you are in the room. And there is a certain quarterback that um, is now a broadcaster and um, has a statue in front of um, McLean Stadium and maybe wasn't always the greatest in that regard, and we can move on from that. So it's... Um, quarterback leadership and what guys think of the QB in the room they I mean sometimes it really matters in the case of 2011 I don't know that it did um, but I I think that 
those things are important, but they're also, they're also, there's like you said, it's downstream from your ability. Like at the end of the day, guys want to win. Like, right. That's, that's what people want to do. And so this isn't to say that, um, the other individual was a huge detriment. I'm not saying that at all. That's please do not screen cap that or like cut out the audio. That is not the quite the case. There's just, there are varying degrees and fans. We as fans have a degree, uh, have an ability to like, we, you know, we put, we put things onto players because we see people winning and we just kind of assume that like, Oh, they have this skill set or they are, they're not winning and they don't have the skill set. But oftentimes that's narrative building around what's really going on in, internally. And when it comes to QB, and this is a very long winded way of saying QB leadership matters, but I don't know, particularly the college level, I don't know that matters as much as people think. Right. Um, go look at, go look at what's been going on in Georgia. Like the, the last two years. I mean, that's not, it's, you know, that team is so good, the QB leadership didn't really matter. What was going on with the quarterback didn't really matter. Right. And so I, it, it matters, but I don't know that it matters. It's not the make or break between like a nine win and a six win. I think it's the make or break between like an eight win or a nine win is probably a better way to phrase it. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think leadership matters a ton at the position, but obviously it just can take so many yeah. different forms. Um, yeah. I think what kind of has has me feeling a little bit off about it is the fact that after the spring game, um, when when Shapin basically to my eyes looked functionally the exact same as last year. I mean, I know I, I know it's a small sample size. I know it's a you know all those caveats aside, but like he looked the same to me. He kind of had the same issues and he had the same strengths. Like he had a couple of those fantastic throws, but the same issues cropped up. And then it was like, well, we're going to name him the starter because we feel so good about all of his progress as a leader over the over the offseason. And, and it kind of leaves me, obviously, as an outsider that has no access to any of this and how important that is on a day-to-day basis, et cetera. But just being like, yeah, but is his footwork going to get any better? <laughs> you know, like that's kind of like where my eyes go to because ultimately he just needs to be a better quarterback than he was last year, which – we're not going to go down that road again because Jeff, I know, I think we've did this on at least two or three separate podcasts. Shapin's a good quarterback. It's just a question of whether he's going to become great, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. A lot of lies at the wide receivers, blah, 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 blah. I just mean, I, that's just kind of something I have my eyes on because a lot of the focus is on him this offseason has turned to the leadership question. But there were a lot of issues with his actual play, and, and that's normal for college quarterbacks. He's not perfect. But I'll just be curious to see if he can actually improve as an actual you know, for the, you know, the non-leadership aspects of his, uh, of his game going into the fall. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I, let's turn to the offense as a whole. Now um, I kind of mentioned earlier that um, I was working on this article for three, six, five this week, which should be coming out. Um, I'm not sure when this podcast can come out. So I don't know, whatever, maybe it's already out. Who knows? Uh, but I found a really interesting thing, um, uh, aspect of things when I was researching for the article, Jeff, and I was just kind of curious for your thoughts on it. Um, when you look at the advanced stats metri- metrics, um, there was actually a huge offensive upswing in college football this past year. And basically what I mean by that is I was looking at how all the advanced metrics rated Baylor last year, and most of them had them somewhere right around 30th nationally. But then when you look at their actual, like the, the numbers that they use to rank them. So like, for example, SP plus, which is a system I look at, they use a stat called adjusted points per game. And most systems, they either use like an adjusted points per drive or points per game or something like that. So anyway, the point being these systems basically had Baylor, which were around 30th last year, 
those how good Baylor's offense actually was last year would normally have you as a top 20 offense. And that was because all of college football as a whole was way up offensively compared to defensively insofar as what normally is a top 20 offense um, was actually a top 30 offense. And what normally is like a top 10 offense was more like a top 20 offense. I was kind of curious to do any reactions to, you know, and this is back to the previous five years before that. So I didn't go back further than that. Um, any thoughts, Jeff, on why that happened last year? Generally, when there's a trend this big, there's got to be kind of some sort of narrative. It's not the likelihood that it was some aberration or randomness in the data for that many teams isn't very likely. So what offensive versus defense here do you expect was the source of the big offensive upswing in college football? So I, 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 don't, I don't know. I know you're looking at me for the big thing. I, I don't really have my, my, the one guess that I have, I want to see it for another year. I, I need to see evidence that it wasn't a remnant of the COVID year mm. because the, you know, what particularly on offense, you know, continuity matters so much on offense and being able to have, you know, the difference between a grown man strength at 23 versus 18 is just monumental. And so the question that I would have is, what is there, is this something that is sustainable over the long term? Have people gotten a lot better and has play action really, you know, filtered all the way out to where it's just, the default for so many teams it just there's so much stress on all these downs um that that is you know is that the reason why this is causing it uh, the other one that i that i have thought in the back of my mind people are going for it on fourth down significantly more oh yeah um, that's a great point that's you, you know you're if you're going for it on fourth down more you're gonna generate more points over the course of the season that's just i can't believe i didn't think yeah. of that i mean just think about how much worse baylor's offense would be if the standard um uh method for when you go forward on third versus fourth down was from 10 years prior. I mean, Baylor goes forward on fourth down, what, two to three times a game. That's probably worth yeah. somewhere between three to four or five points a game. So that, that's probably huge. Cause yeah, Baylor's not alone in that revolution. I bet, I bet that's a big part of it. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it, but the big thing will be, does, does it sustain this year? Like if it, if it dips down a little bit, it still stays up that that's, that will be key. Um, Total total scoring is going to be down because of the clock rule changes. There are going right. to be fewer possessions. I mean, it's just that's that's a fact. Yeah. But does do points per drive? And that's that has always been my my number one. If you had to ask me, like, what is the number one right. thing that I look at? It is points per drive. Like that's just even over even over points. It's just always points per driving. Are you able to finish? Um, are you able to finish a drive and, and convert to points? Um, and that does that stay elevated this year through a combination of the fourth down and some other changes in the play action? You know, I, I think that it's it absolutely could. Um, I do think if, if you're looking for a schematic answer, uh, I don't think teams really know what to do with a lot of the like with the play action. I mean, they don't know what to do with it in the pros right now. You know, it's it's still you talking about defenses action. don't know what to do yeah. against it. You know, defenses figured out pro defenses figured out the Wildcat and the QB mesh game pretty quickly. Um, there are a few exceptions. Obviously, you look at um, you look at Philadelphia and what Hertz is able to do, but they're all, you know, Hertz is a bit of a space alien in terms of what he's able to do at that position. Um, but what teams haven't been able to figure out quite yet is is the uh, is what they're doing at Miami and in San Francisco. That very heavy outside zone game paired with massive speed on the outside to put uh, stress both horizontally and vertically, yep. it, it does remind me a little bit of the art, like a fancy version of the art Braille system in that they're trying to put 
so much they're trying to put so much pressure on the constraints in terms of flow and speed and everything else that um it becomes almost impossible like you there's there's not a way that you can stand up to it at a certain point um defenses haven't figured out how to address that quite yet um and that's that's something that they'll get to they'll evolve into it uh but if that if that type of zone game really filters down into the into the college level i think we're going to see a part of that the thing that would give me hesitancy in terms of saying no that's definitely it is that requires that requires a type of offensive line play that you don't really see at a place like old miss like old miss is not getting into a heavy three-point and they're not you know they're not doing a lot of stuff like that they're doing play action just like they do at oklahoma where it's out of the gun um, you know, there's you don't get quite the opportunity for side to side movement and cutbacks the way you do when your offensive line is in a three point and you're running on the outside zone. So um, that's is a bit of a ramble, but I, I would say that it's probably most likely due to fourth down and and uh, uh, COVID people or COVID guys, and then play action would be my secondary part of that. And we'll see what happens this year. You know, the numbers will tell us a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think what's fun about all that answer um, is that. Obviously, Jeff Grimes and this this system, um, and with Eric Mateos being one of the handful of best O-line coaches in the country, they're kind of really operating at the forefront. Of course, uh, the forefront never really lasts in college football because everything is cyclical, so it's going to be interesting to see where we're right. at in five years when half the Big 12 is running a wide zone-based scheme um, because that's just, that's just how it's going to work. Uh, the system is fantastic. It's going to continue to grow in popularity. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in five years uh, on that, but at least for now, Baylor's in year three of being in this system. Uh, there are very, very few college teams out there that are in year three of this system. I mean, Hell, look at what happened to Kansas last year in their second year of running this scheme. And all of a sudden they have the preseason QB, you know, offensive player of the year, just because he's literally just a strong armed, good athlete running in a really solid system that doesn't even have that much talent around him. It's a fantastic system. Yeah. So um, I guess let's uh, finish off talking about the offense. Again, I have this huge article coming out arguing, you know, kind of ironclad. I think this is going to be a top 20 offense this year. Obviously, when you say top 20, it's a bit relative to how good the rest of all offenses are in college football. But if you kind of just look at it statistically compared to last year to this year, you would need Baylor to get about um, basically three to four points per game better on an adjusted basis, um, which kind of getting into the weeds on that. But basically, you're looking at Baylor's being a little bit marginally better than they were on offense last year. Jeff, are you? would you kind of be with me in that as basically ironclad? I mean, caveats again for injuries. I mean, I, I put it in the article. It's tough because so many times last year, Jeff, I know you and I would say, well, as long as one of Tay or Squirrel stays really healthy throughout the year, they should be fine. And the problem is, of course, Tay got knocked out early and then Squirrel played with a huge knee brace all year because he injured himself right before the season started and never looked the same. So you can always do injury caveats. Um, but are you kind of uh, with me on the fact that this offense is – I'm putting it out there, you know, top 20 offense. I think you would say that's a great offense. Do you think, like, it's pretty much uh, not set in stone, but more or less set in stone that Baylor has a top 20 offense this year? I'd be very surprised they didn't have a top 20 offense. I think it's more likely that they have a top 10 offense than that, they, than that the offense drops down to, like, the 40-ish range. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, uh, there's, there's a much better – there's a much better path, particularly when you look at the offensive line. Like I think, I think this is going to be the year. We, I we, we hoped it was going to be last year. It just didn't end up happening. But the it, you know in 2021, the run game really relied on um, 
was really a, really a function of the fact that they could do so much QB run. Like they they were able to get a gap extra gap back. They didn't have the tight ends that they that they wanted fully for the scheme at the time. They were able to get an extra gap back by running Bohannon. And you know last year that that option wasn't available to them. And between the running back issues and the fact that the offensive line wasn't just did not execute as well, or some of the some of the players did is a better way to phrase it. Some of the guys didn't have the foot speed. Um, I think to get out on wide zone to be able to walk up outside. I think the foot speed is better with these guys. The bulk is better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they're able to get a lot closer to the ideal run game, which is they want to sit, they would love to be able to sit in 12 and just at will run for run for five yards on outside zone. And I think they won't be able to do that against everybody, certainly, but there are going to be big 12 opponents where they're going to line up and from basically the first snap, yeah. they're going to be able to run outside zone for a minimum of four yards on every play. I and mean, that's basically what Baylor did to Tech last year. I know that's Baylor fans' favorite game of the year, but it's why Baylor was, even though they really struggled offensively in some games and were kind of hit or miss uh, throughout the year, but there were just some opponents that couldn't do anything about it. You know, Kansas was one of those. Tech was one of those. Um, so I think what – TCU what, until they adjusted. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Baylor, that great scheme. Um, but what will be interesting to see this year is nobody can run into nine and ten-man boxes all day, um, but the margins as far as being able to consistently run into eight-man boxes, you hope you don't need to do that. Uh, but it will be interesting to see whether Baylor can do that against – three big 12 opponents this year versus like six or seven. Uh, Cause that obviously really changes the math for, you know, how much you need to get out of the pass game in any particular game um, uh, to get a win. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um, well, so that's pretty high hopes for the offense there. Obviously we didn't really talk about QB or really any of the specific positions. That's not the purpose of this pod. Um, we're still kind of feeling things out over the summer. We'll, we'll get, we'll get into the position breakdowns. I exactly. Think. We, we, we need to we need to see some stuff from summer camp. It'll be the end of August before we can have an intelligent conversation. I think so too. But yeah, I mean, a really high hopes for the offense because just to kind of put a final cherry on top of that discussion, like um, like Jeff alluded to, um, you know, every offense at the end of the day is about punishing um, over you know overplaying when the defense overplays one hand, right? And so in the Art Briles offense, it was all about punishing teams for if they kept everybody back, then they would just run the inside zone or run the, you know, run interior power play. If they started bringing people up, that's when you hit them outside. You know, that's a simplified version for, for this offense is really about establishing wide zone. And then you get to do a myriad of, of other things based upon when defenses start overplaying that front side. That can be, you know, with Bohannon, we saw him running the zone read off the backside. You can run the, the jet sweeps. You can run wide receiver screens. You can run on tight end screens you can start adding some of those interior runs that they started playing last year i think what jeff um yeah i don't want to speak for you but i'm pretty sure i know this is how you feel what's really excited about this year is that a it's the third year and so they're really i think this is finally when you can say like the entire offense is installed there's not really anything they're holding back at this point um and b um, they've got the O-line play and then the tight end play to be able to kind of basically run every play in the playbook. Obviously with yeah. Shapin, they're not going to be doing any of the QB run stuff, but I think there's a lot of kind of nifty stuff to where maybe Grimes last year was saying, man, I'd love to be able to run this nifty little play that we've only practiced one or two times, but I don't trust the kids to execute it at this point, or I don't have the right personnel. I think Baylor is going to be at the point this fall where basically everything Grimes has dreamed up, they have the personnel to execute it. Um, and so that's, what's going to be really, Really fun to see if they can uh, kind of fully operationalize the offense. So, 
Yeah, I would agree with that. The one caveat I would add on to that, and it's just for the fans at home, if they could get six yards on every wide zone run, they will not run another play an entire game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that, that's the thing that fans need to understand. Like, if if you can get six yards on outside zone, like, literally every time you run it, it's going to seem really boring, and they're going to, like, be in the playoffs. I mean, that's just the reality. Like, right. if you can get six yards, I'm not saying they're going to be able to do that, but if they were able to get into that range where they were legitimately getting five to six yards at will on standard downs against eight in the box, I just, you just run that because you're just you're just going to score almost every time unless there's unless you fumble the ball. Um, so if if the run game does work the way we think that there's a real chance they're going to be able to once once that offensive line really kind of gels into it by October I think is is where I would put it I that Utah there's so many new cats on the team like Yeah, that. that's going to be tough. It's, yeah, it's going to be tough against Utah and that's that's just that's just life it's not a big deal. I'm not saying they're going to lose that game. That's just going to be a tough game for them. Um but if they're if they're able to do this by October, I mean why would you not just get the easiest possible points? Like the goal is to win the game, not to be flashy. So if the run game is hammering as well as it should, yes, there's going to be a lot of like interesting points where in high leverage situations, they're running stuff that is, we, we we're, we're not used to seeing. Um, but at the same time, if right. it is really working that well, right. they're going to run outside zone 8% of the time. Literally. Yeah. So. It'll be fun. Uh, I love this game. I know, like, I still hear some complaints from kind of when I meet, like, some average fans out there about the offense being a little bit plotting and stuff. And I, I get it. Like, once you're when you're used to the high, uh, the high-flung offense, it, I, I really do get it. But I think for you and I, Jeff, and I know for a lot of the people that are probably listening to this podcast, it's a it's a really beautiful offense to watch. It's uh it's really fun to see it executed well. Well, let's yes. flip over to the defense. Um, you had a great message that you sent over to to me the other day where. We were kind of expressing our frustration with the fact that every time we try and talk about defense this offseason, we all kind of just shrug uh, because it's it, there are some knowns, uh, but there's a ton of unknowns. Uh, they're really, you know, I should have done this before the podcast, but you know, how many starters are they bringing back? Like maybe two, three, maybe so something like that. Uh, there, there's transfers everywhere. It's a new coordinator, uh, but you sent this great message, basically kind of separating things out into, okay, here is what I feel like I actually know. Um, so why don't you kind of go over that? Um, sure. So the, the, the most, the two things that really sent out to me are going to be, I, I would be very surprised if there's not significant improvement, both at the safety play and at the linebacker play. And that has to do with coaching changes. Um, it is, not possible to have a bigger coaching discrepancy versus the safety play, the safety coach from last year and Pallage. Um, you know, uh, Petrie, Petrie raves, raves about Pallage. Like guys, guys love him. Kids love playing for him. They want to run out of the tunnel for him. He is a great safety coach. Um, and I, I mean, that's just the bottom line. He's a great safety coach. And the coach they had last year, I, I don't know why that didn't work out, um, but it didn't work out. And, and the, just, and the yeah. safety play was terrible. Safety play was was terrible. And I don't. I really don't think that that was the kid's fault in a lot of ways. I think they had a lot of young guys back there, and I think the coach um, just couldn't connect with those kids and couldn't make it happen. And that the Aranda moved on from that very quickly. Um, the second thing, though, about linebacker play is that um, you know there's a reason that Roberts is not here anymore, and we've we've hinted around that for a little while. Uh, we don't need to go into too much depth on this, but. Um, it is, I have, I feel very confident in saying that the linebacker play 
at least those kids are going to run out the those kids are going to run out the tunnel for the linebacker coach in a way that they were not going to run out the tunnel for Roberts. That's just the a fundamental fact of life. So there's going to be better play. There's going to be more spirited play. Those guys are going to be in position. They're going to be coached better. That's the only thing that we know for sure. I feel very confident saying those two positions, safety and linebacker, will be better this year because of that fact. Outside of that, though, that's when we start getting into the assumptions, which is um, we know that, you know, we know that Roberts last year didn't really run around his scheme. Like we, we kept talking about it the whole year of, oh, they would make adjustments at halftime. And, you know, maybe they're still trying to, like, coach these guys up. But sometime by the time they got to end of October, uh, I remember thinking for sure, yeah. I told <laughs> on the pod, like, give them until after the um, give them until after the bye week, like the bye weeks when they're going to roll it out. And they came out of the bye week and they weren't running anything new. And I remember looking at it at that point and thinking, like, I got okay, I'm wrong. And it turns out that Aranda didn't really like it either because there was a change made. <laughs> yep. Um, so uh Pallage, Pallage runs Pallage runs first and foremost a much more similar version of what and he's most comfortable with a similar version of what Aranda ran at LSU in terms of the back end structure. Now that's gonna be a lot getting away that basically supplied a lot of quarters um a, a lot less i mean they're just going to run quarters if they can get the cornerback play they're just going to run aranda's version of quarters on every standard down and just wait for somebody to beat them it's going to be the same thing as outside zone they're going to run literally one play and go if you beat us okay we'll make an adjustment and if you can't beat us okay we're sitting in this play and we're going to win the game like that's the baylor's going to call two plays the entire season they're going to call wide zone on offense. They're going to call quarters on defense. Um, and that's basically going to be it. Jeff, um, is it is it an oversimplification to say that the biggest, uh, the biggest problem between 2021 and 2022 is that um, – I okay, I, I don't want this to be too long of a question, but just to give a brief context. From all of my – I loved listening to Ron Roberts' defensive clinics. Uh, he had a lot of stuff that was available on YouTube. He's smart as hell. He's one of those guys that you could tell that, like, you would only have to explain something to him once, and he would instantly be able to kind of implement it and think about it. Like, just really, really smart guy. Um, but he was also a guy that kind of had an answer for everything. You, you get that from his clinics. It was like, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. If this. And so one, one of the things I wonder about is that in 2021 – they got so comfortable doing what you just talked about, which is they could just run quarters because um, they had good defensive back play. Uh, they had such good play up front. And he had all those smart guys with Terrell Bernard, Jalen Petrie, JT Woods that could really kind of do exactly as they were coached. Um, and then I think you get to 2022. And it, it To me, from the outside, what it felt like was that um, and again, this is like total speculation. I don't know. I'm just saying what it felt like was it because of the constant changing scheme and everything else from Roberts, it felt like he didn't trust any of the players to kind of implement anything. And it, it almost felt like back to 2020 in the sense of throwing up, like really trying to kind of put stuff together with like paper clips and, and gum and stuff like that. And it really didn't feel like there was a vision for what he wanted to do. So I know that was really long. Uh, hopefully you got something to go off there. I, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, I don't – there were plays – I mean, by the by November, I mean, everyone knew what they were trying to do on fourth down. They would run these very generic country zone coverages. Sometimes they ran Tampa 2. They ran a lot of, like, old-school cover three that literally nobody runs. I mean, it's the type of stuff that, junior, that like, junior varsity kids get installed on 
day one of summer camp. And that's why I say it felt like Roberts didn't trust him to run other stuff. Yeah, and I just, I don't, I, I, you know, again, this is one of those you have to be in the room to really know what was going on. But there was clearly a huge disconnect with with everything. I don't know if that was related to the safety. Again, going back to the safety coaches, um, if that was the issue. I mean, there's just, there was something fundamentally missing there that they just didn't have and so um what what it looks like this year is i mean even going back to the spring game it looked more like an aranda defense we talked about this a lot it looked like an aranda defense in the spring game in a way it didn't at any point really last because aranda fundamentally um and i think this is kind of what i was trying to get out with my meandering question aranda fundamentally is an extremely simple uh defense in the sense of he has a couple he has you know three or four basically base defenses and then a bunch of checks off those, but it's not it's not complicated for his players at all. And I felt like what Roberts was doing last year was very trying all sorts of different stuff. Kind of comp- it was simple, but it was compl- complicated in the sense is that it deviated from what they were doing the previous year. So it'll be interesting to see whether I, I think when you listen to Aranda talk, uh, we obviously haven't had a lot of exposure to Palage, but it definitely seems like they're very simpatico on that point of play simple, allow your kids to play fast, and then you get to do fun stuff up front whenever you're able to earn it. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think, you know, they're going to start out – I'm very curious to know the linebacker play is going to be really interesting. You know, right. it seems like they're kind of zagging with linebackers. Everyone wants super speedy linebackers. Um, that's been the default. You know, if you go to the NFL, everyone wants, everyone wants the guy that's 245 and can run a 4-5. Like, that's, that's – you know. Right. And those guys don't really exist in college. <laughs> and those guys don't. And those guys don't exist in college. And so, you know what? What Aranda? What it looks like they're doing right now is it. It almost looks like they're trying to come up with a linebacker system to where they can ask these guys to do to almost handle the run game for them with their size and their um, instinctual, like their instinctual ability, like just to completely walk down the box in the run game. And then allow the outside guys, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this more in a second, but Palage, uh, Aranda talks a lot about how you need to design defenses now from back to front, which is, you know, from the defensive backs all the way up to the run game. And, you know, I think that in this case, there it w- seems to me like they are trying to build a linebacking core that allows them to put the best pass coverage defenders in the secondary and to protect those guys from having to do some of the run support calls, as opposed to the way that I think a lot of deep, a lot of you know defensive guys sometimes think of it, which is you got to stop. You know, any um, Saban talks about this explicitly. Like the very first thing in the Saban notebook for years, I don't know if it's still there, was we don't get beat up the middle on the run. It's literally the first line of his entire booklet. We do not get beat up the middle on the run. If you stop the the, the Saban scheme when he ran that two gap was. We don't get beat up the middle on the run. We force the run outside. We play zone on first and second, and then we uh, blitz on third down and play man and take chances. That was the Saban scheme for years, and Aranda fundamentally doesn't doesn't believe it. That doesn't believe in it, and that that unity with Palage is, I think, pretty vital. Like they are they are not focused on stopping the run first. They are focused on trying to stop the pass and then to build up the front seven as as a secondary effect to how to keep how to how to help out as much as possible the defenders in the back to let them put the best pass defense they can on the field and then whatever they need to do to support that in the front seven or with the guys in the box that's what they're going to do and it seems like they're getting bulker bulkier bigger more instinctual linebackers like that seems to be what they really want guys that can knife in and out of the box they're not going to ask those guys to run wide but 
I could be yeah. wrong on that, but that's kind of the vibe I'm getting right now. Yeah, it's interesting because that's very much kind of in line with, I know that's how, you know, Coach Snow felt back in 2019 and it's how he felt when he played at the NFL level, or excuse me, coached at the NFL level too, was it's all about yeah. preventing big plays. It's all about, you know, playing back to front, all that stuff. So that'll be interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of ties into it. It makes me like that kid they took, Mike Smith, from Liberty more because when I watched this kid's tape from Liberty, I was like, yeah, he's a good player in the box, but he's slow running side to sideline. He's uh, he's not really great in coverage, but all of a sudden they've apparently, I mean, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but they listed him at 240, and so he's 6'1", 240. That is like huge. I mean, Dylan Doyle was 6'3", 240. So, I mean, imagine Dylan Doyle's frame, but even heavier. Um, and I was like, okay, well, maybe they just want him to be a box hero. And, uh, you know, that, that would be his best role. So it'll be interesting to see how they use those inside backers. I know that was kind of the, eventually the vision of rule as well was to have those three down linemen and then play with some really beefy guys, um, at the inside backer spot and then have a lot of versatility on the back end. So it'll be interesting to see what they do this year. Um, that kind of ties into the last thing I wanted to ask about the defense was, they really don't have a nose tackle. I know we've already talked about this. And when we brought it up after the spring game, I asked you, I said, hey, look, they were still playing a lot of this type front stuff, um, which, again, for the fans I, I, or the listeners, I'm sorry if, if you don't know what that is. We just don't have time to get into it right now. But essentially, and Jeff, as you know, uh, but just for the listener, you know, they, they, they still were doing the, the beefy schematic style. They weren't really doing anything interesting up front in the spring game. They're in on another uh, grad transfer, uh, you know, transfer portal guy who's like 6'4", 265. So another one of these types of like they have all of these kind of guys who could play three tech and nobody who can really knows. Um, so and I don't, I don't know if you have any projections on what it's going to look like this fall up front, but it, I just bring it up because it's interesting because they probably have seven or eight Big 12 quality defensive linemen and maybe one of them is over 290 pounds. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see how they use that defensive front this fall. Yeah. Um, again, I, I know I say this 100 billion times, you get tired of me saying it, but it would be malpractice for them to put something on tape. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? I'm like, not complaining. <laughs> yeah. It would be malpractice. So like the fact that we're like, why would, why didn't we say anything? Like, well, duh, these guys are not idiots. Yeah. Um, I, it's fascinating. I, I really, I really don't know. I, I am one thing I feel very comfortable with. Aranda, Aranda has run, really three to four different types of schemes from dating back to looking, you know, even all the way out to Hawaii, but I think Utah state was the, is the place yeah. I'm thinking about it. Utah state, Hawaii, Wisconsin, and LSU, like all four of those, he, he changed his approach based off what he was able to get into the room. And that, that meant all the way from what he asked his defensive lineman to do to what he was able to, you know, what he asked his linebackers to do. Um, you know, they were able at LSU, they were able to get, you know, freak athletes at the second level. So they just got these massively strong dudes, had them play tight. And then they just wanted linebackers that could run sideline to sideline. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one thing about LSU, they actually ran a more simplified scheme because at LSU, there was such a, and I, I do know this is true, there was such a um, requirement to get these mega athletes these you know five-star cornerbacks onto the field to get the five-star safeties onto the field there's so much turnover in a place like lsu because it really is a foot i mean it's an nfl factory that's what those major sec schools really are they're just nfl factories and occasionally you win a title out of them if everything lines up but that's really what they're doing and aranda was not able to teach and do the full install there in some years just because of the crazy high turnover rate 
at a place like LSU, where particularly, you know, if you have a guy that's not on the two deep by his junior year, like you need that guy out. Like, I mean, that if you're LSU, I mean, you just don't, you don't want that person there. You need guys to transfer out. And so they, he was not able to put everything that he wanted to in at LSU in the way he what he was able to at Wisconsin. I know um, it's, I'm very interested to see what he does, particularly with the defensive linemen, because he has like, they have great athletes in the, in, on the defensive line. They have decent athletes. I think at the linebacker level is probably how I would phrase that. I'm, I'm separating out, I'm separating out inside backer from Jack. Okay. Right. I make right. Um, and so what, you know, what do they really try to do with that? Uh, what Aranda really loves, Aranda, they try to maximize, they try to find guys that are great at one particular thing. And then and get them doing that. Yeah. Many of those guys on the field while having to have a, only a handful of guys that can play, that can wear multiple hats. And so where do they, you know, what, who is the guy they ask to wear multiple hats on the defense? That's, I think that's the question that I, we won't really know until Utah there will be one guy in the at the box level. There'll be one guy at the safety level, um, and there'll be one guy on the defensive line. There'll be at least three dudes where it's like, okay, we got to have you be able to wear multiple hats to be able to make this whole system work, and then everyone else is going to be put in a position to do the thing that they do best. So, yeah. we, we just we really don't know what that's going to be. But I agree, they have a bazillion guys that look like they would be great under tackles or great right. five techs. And then you look at him and you're like, I don't see anyone that I would tradi- you would traditionally assume would be able to play the nose or like a two eye. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think that's a really really good point that you brought up there about players having one thing they're good at um, because that can come across as like a insult. I mean, not an insult, but whatever you know, as underselling players. But the reality is, in college, um, most players are not developing a full suite of skills in college. It's more like, hey, can you get good enough at one thing to get on the field and then get noticed by an NFL team and get drafted, right? And so, like, just as one example, like, when I was watching the kid uh, that Baylor took from Utah State, not the corner, but the the, the outside backer, uh, Byron Bonds, um, he's, he's 6'4", um, uh, 240 or so like that, and he's really, really good at one thing. He's good at knifing, like – on loop stunts, like getting up field and beating tackles inside. And that is a skill that is tremendously valuable in this defense because Aranda loves to loop those guys around, loves to knife, loves guys who are versatile in so far as they're able to knife versus dropping back into coverage, etc. But he's not necessarily a full, uh, a fully developed player in so far as playing the run and rushing from the outside, etc. Like I said, that's normal for a college player. So you can apply that analysis that I just did to him, and we probably will whenever we do the full defensive line breakdown. But there, basically every guy on the defensive front um, that applies to, insofar in as they're really good at one thing. And so, it, like you said, it will be really interesting because I think you'll know from that first game or two who are the guys that they trust to basically be out there on every down and that they ask to do multiple things. Like, I don't know. My mind just goes right now to, like, I know they really like this kid named Cooper Lands who – I don't know if he's ever going to be elite at every, anything, but they, the, the players and the staff both seem to really be talking about him a lot. And maybe it's because he's one of these kids who just you put a lot on his plate and he's able to put it all down. And so you can kind of apply that analysis across the defense. Um, last thing I really want to say on the defense is that we started this discussion um, – by you mentioning how you're very curious about to see what happens with the cornerback room this year. I think you're right on that. But I also do think that um, 
the defensive line, uh, including the outside backers in that, the defensive front really is what is going to determine whether this is just like an okay defense versus if they get fully maximized. And I think if the staff can fully realize how to use all these different talents, um, that's how Baylor could actually play great defense this year. I, I don't really foresee a path to them having like top tier defensive back play this year. They're just too inexperienced. It's not going to happen that way. I think they're going to be solid, but I think if they can figure out a way to just make it an absolute nightmare up front with all of these uh, differing skill packages, I mean, Garmin Randolph's probably the highest rated defensive prospect on the, um, on the defense this year, as far as NFL teams go. And he's somebody that Baylor fans aren't even really thinking about. And Baylor kind of has like five, six, seven guys that are on that level of athleticism and quality. So I know I've been going on along here, but just, I know, Jeff, you and I are both very anxious to see how it plays out up front because it can go a lot of different ways. And Aranda, if he's actually back involved again, it'll be really interesting to see what he does. I, the thing that I am interested in on this is I think that they have – there seems to be a big emphasis on being able to stop the run and be, without having to get into um, – The two-cap stuff. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but be, being able to stay in too high. Yeah, that if I had to guess, that seems to be their primary goal, which is how can we, how can we just avoid one rat? They don't play that many teams that RPO. I think that's a big change. That is one big change in, yeah. in the, in the league right now. Outside of what, well, we don't really know what TC is going to do with Kendall Bryles. You know, <laughs> they've he you, he used to be a huge RPO guy. He got away from some of that after being under Kiffin. They still RPO a good bit, but they he play actions more than he did. Um, originally under his daddy um but you know ut is going to rpo to death probably some at um tcu probably some at oklahoma but iowa state i think they really iowa like it under campbell maybe like even then like you don't like the five years ago in 2018 you know rpo was the pull like everyone basically ran rpo and until you could stop it, it was kind of like in Baylor's version of the wide zone. You ran; it didn't look like that. It looked like more. It looked more multiple because there's the option. There's the run pass option, quite literally. Like you know, are we running? Are we passing? But still, people ran RPO five years ago. Like Baylor runs wide zone. I mean, you just ran it on first and second down, and you wait for somebody to stop it. Um, I think that like teams are not doing that to that degree now. And so, unless you're playing a, a, a um, unless you're playing someone that is gonna live in that full time being able to just um sit back in quarters on standard downs and let like garmin randolph is a stud against the run game like i mean he is his length his strength he's always been great at, the, at run support he is outstanding on the edge like you get him out there you get some of the other guys that we've been talking about like franklin uh, gabe hall like these guys are going to be able to stop the run i think and so if they're able to do that out of quarters it allows them to just basically ignore play action which would be an absolute not right. totally ignore it, but if you can practically ignore it as a, as a safety you can't really you can't really throw the ball on first and second downs i mean you just can't i just want to elucidate on what you were saying jeff um because i'm pretty sure this is what you mean but just for the listener when you're talking about being able to stay back in too high because teams aren't rpoing anymore it's literally just because Teams back in the day, they would see if you have two safeties back, the quarterback's pulling the ball, and we're just going to throw that little shallow slant right in front of the safeties. And so traditionally, to stop that, you need to spin one of those safeties down and actually have him cover the slot receiver, right? That, that's kind of what you were mentioning. 
all shot is or not all shot is a Tampa two phrase, but you know that the RPO that thank you the RPO would usually get thrown. I want to say like eight yards on on whatever whatever the passing strength was somewhere right in that range. And the way the teams got around it was they just put a safety right there, and that's right. what Aranda did one right. They just put a safety. That's what they did against um, Ole Miss in the Sugar Bowl. They just put a safety in that spot and said, okay, this play is not available to you. So yeah. What else are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And then Ole Miss couldn't uh, run the ball, and it was basically over. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that really was the case. Ole Miss couldn't run the ball. The quarterback went out, and that was just ball game. Um, so, but, you know, they don't, again, they don't have that many of those guys. There's going to be a lot more traditional play action as opposed to the RPO. And how do you, you know, how do you defend against that on standard downs? If they can, if they're able to live in too high, if they're able to live in quarters on yeah. standard downs, they're able to stop the run with like seven guys in the box or even in some, I mean, the, the the star is always going to be counted as a run fit guy depending on the formation but you know if they're able to stop the run with those with six to seven guys and able to just sit back in quarters i mean the yeah. defense will be significantly better like right out of the bat and that doesn't even assume getting better getting better with better play in the back end just being able to do that on standard downs alone wouldn't yeah. be a massive improvement all right, last defense-specific question. Uh, I don't. We haven't talked since um, you know McCarty was dismissed from the team and transferred to Tech. I had uh, very embarrassingly written this article the same day that morning that he was going to be um, kind of one of the focal points of the defense because he's very talented. He's athletically a great player, and they they really have been uh, after Al Walcott last year, who was up and down. Um, it's been an open question for what they do at star this year and. Obviously, like I don't, it, this doesn't need to be a preview at safety or at star or anything like that. But I'm just kind of curious for your thoughts of Jalen Petrie really made that defense go in so far as their ability to. They, as you have mentioned many times on this podcast, they really changed a lot of the rules of the defense to um, uh, profile him. And I'm curious, how does this defense work? Because in the sense of, I doubt that. I doubt that the star this year is going to be one of their five best players on defense. Uh, I just, I don't think that's going to be the case. Is that a huge worry for you? Not really a worry. Can the star just be an okay starter for this defense to be great? Or do they need whoever is at that spot to really shine to play great defense? Going back, Aranda doesn't, Aranda really needs to really like to run an Aranda defense as he traditionally envisions it. He needs cornerbacks that can press and he needs nose tackles that can stand up against double teams. Um, everyone else is fungible and they move, they, they try to move guys around to for their best skill sets based off of that. They don't have to have a stud at um, star. I mean, that guy's going to be a good player. I'm not knocking whoever it's going to be. You know, we're talking about, I mean, Petrie is. Petrie's like a top five to seven safety in the league right now. I mean, that that is really absurd when you think about it, but he's right there um, already. I mean, he's I mean, he's just an amazing player. So when it comes to star, I think it, it really is going to matter. It's going to be twofold. I, what, you, what I think you'll see this year is I think it's a lot more likely that we'll see – we haven't seen prior – Star has been a guy that's just been out there. It's, like, been the one star. I think you're going to see – everyone's doing something different in yeah. 2023 offensively. I think you're going to see Stars where um, if there's a – if they go up against somebody that's, like, got a lot of speed on the field. They're going up against Tech. Okay. Right. You're going to have a guy that's got a lot more man coverage skills out there. Right. You're going up against um, – you know, you're going up against another team, you're going up against BYU, all of a sudden maybe, okay, like, all right, I'm going to I'm gonna take this guy off the field, I'm going to put the guy out there that's got better run support skills. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, 
I don't. It's just it's hard. It's it's. I think you're going to see guys swapped out there a lot more like they've done really with the Jacks for the most part. You know, mm-hmm. they have kind of. Yeah, the Jacks have been very dependent on who they're playing offensively. Yeah. And I think like that's what I think you're going to see in twenty in twenty twenty three at the star position is there's not going to be the one star. It's going to be uh, the standard outs will be uh, position will be scheme dependent. I'm sorry, will be scheme dependent based on who they're playing, and then the third down will be basically whoever has got the best coverage skills as it shakes out over the course of the year. And remember, we do have evidence of this a lot, which is Aranda likes to rotate a ton of guys the first few weeks. And then over the course of the season, like like he wants everyone to get their fair shot. And then once it becomes evident who is really kind of making that position their own into the, into the middle of October, they really start to dial back in terms of, or they start to really prioritize number of snaps. So I would expect huge numbers of guys to get yeah. rotated in at the star. And we won't really know who's going to be the guy, even if there is going to be like the guy until the end of October. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, a lot of like again, uh, like normal, this is bringing up a lot of other things that I'd like to discuss, but we'll put those off for future episodes. Um, outside of defense, Jeff, just kind of anything uh, you want to wrap up talking about? Anything that's kind of come to mind over the conversation? Um, no, I mean, I'm I'm starting to get excited about I'm getting excited about football. Usually, I get ex- at July 5th is like my first date of I'm ready to go. Um, I haven't had that quite this year. It's been a very busy last uh, month for me. My dad turned 70. We're actually going to New Hampshire uh, into this week for to celebrate his birthday. So we've been celebrating the old man this week, this month, and it's been a lot of focused on that particularly and like trying to get, you know, all our ducks in a row. So I haven't gotten my normal football um, football fix in, but, and so to be, to have to wait on it till we get back from our trip is like kind of bizarre to think about that. Usually I've already digested and I'm like going through and starting to analyze all this stuff, but um, I'm excited. Like, I'm excited for the season. I really am. Sure. Like, the more I think about it, I, I t- and I'll tell the one, the one final point I'll say on this, this is, this is not in a negative way, but we're going to see what, like a 90 to 95 percent version of an Aranda organization looks like in the year of our Lord 2023 right and we haven't seen that yet he has been through um inexperience or trying to deal with the previous regime's players or um trying to deal with having his mentor on his staff which is organizationally is a very difficult thing to do i have personal experience with having a guy hiring a guy that um was a mentor to me and that to be frank like that kind of went sideways in an uncomfortable way um that he's got he's got everything he wants now he may not have he doesn't have all the players he would ever want i'm not saying that but this is his team like he these are his coaches these are the kids that he wants to have these are the types of kids he wants to have these are the practices he wants to have this is the this is the discipline level he wants to have um you know, that this is going to be what an Aranda organization looks like. And so we're going to be able to come out of 2023 in year four and be able to say there's a path for Aranda being here and winning championship, like Big 12 championships and being competitive in the playoffs. Um, Like there's a path for him to be here for a very long time or there's a path for him to like be able to get into a Big 12 title game once every four years. Or we also might come out of this and go, you know, there's not like there was the 2021 season and it was great, but Oregon, like he does, you know, he's a phenomenal in-game coach, but being the head coach, is not just about in-game coaching. It's about running the organization first and foremost. And he 
doesn't have he doesn't have what Baylor fans really want out of that. I think this like there's it's very unlikely to me that we're going to come out of this year not really having the answer to that question of do we feel really comfortable with Aranda as the head man going forward? Because I know that some fans are kind of looking at this like 2020 was terrible, 2021 is incredible, 2022 is like abysmal. I mean the 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 game against Air Force is just. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I didn't even watch that game because I knew what the outcome was going to be. I didn't want to see it. Like, I just, it was like. The game against watching. Kansas State, man. That, I think that was what really set a lot of fans over the edge. And it just, you know, I just like, you knew what that was. And now it's year four. He's got everyone in that he's going to want. That it's, it's really all on. Did you, have you made the right calls? Like, have you grown through this? Because the first few years as a leader, you know, you're, you're growing and you're learning a lot, but if you get into like year four and year five, and it's like, I'm still, I don't know what to do fundamentally as an organizational leader, then it starts to be, well, maybe this, maybe this isn't going to work out now that right. that's, and that's irrespective of win total, you know, they could, they could win seven games and get crazy injured. And I would just be going, well, they won seven games and they should have won like four, you know right. what I mean? Like yeah. same, same token. Um, so it's not, it's not a hundred percent tied to win total, but it was very obvious in 2020 and it was very obvious in 2022 that there were organizational issues going on. And that's, that's the biggest thing that we want that fans should look at this year and go, are those, do these appear to be ironed out in a real way? The signs are really, are really good right now for that, but we won't know till, you know, November. That would be a really good thing to end on, but I'm going to ruin it by just one last thing here, Jeff. Um, It's okay for you to say no, um, but I'm just going to read off the preseason poll. So Texas first, K-State, OU third, Tech fourth, TCU fifth, and then Baylor, Oklahoma State, UCF, Kansas, Iowa State, BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, and then West Virginia rounding off 14th. I actually really liked the podcast we did last year where we kind of just gave our early vibes and kind of just what we thought generically about each of those teams because I think a lot of that stuff ended up proving true. So maybe if you want to hear us actually give good predictions, go back and listen to that. Um, but just kind of curious, you know, 14 teams – um, whether you have any kind of strongest initial reactions, like, holy smokes, I disagree with that, or, or I really agree with this, or anything like that from that poll. If Texas doesn't make the playoffs this year, that man can't coach. No <laughs> like, everyone wants to make the joke about Texas because Texas has been Texas has been overblown since 2009, and it's funny, and it's like, you know, it's a long-standing joke. They Texas, have so much talent this year, man. Yes, like they're, they're loaded this year. Like if they, if they don't make the playoffs this year, then I would be panicking as a, I'm not panicking, but I, I, if you don't make the playoffs this year, you're never making the playoffs in the SEC with that staff. Right. I mean, it just, right. You're, you're not, you're not getting there. And I think and that really not, comes down to Sark because I think Kwiatkowski is a great defensive coordinator. So I think they've got everything they I need mean, defensively. Yeah. So it's just, can Sark get it done? And I and the question for that is not it's not offensive. Again, you know, I just did that big old long rant on like, is your organization where you want it? This is going to have nothing to do with Sark's offense. It's going to do with are they organizationally built in such a way? Is he able to be the man in terms of the head coach of running that or to get them into the playoffs? Because they have the they have the coaching staff, they have the talent, they have the offensive coordinator for sure with Sark and they have the defensive coordinator. Like, I mean, they are wind up and ready to rock and roll. Like anything under 11 wins is like, this guy's not going to issue the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, I mean they, they have that not, much talent. Not, they, they are not going to have a better shot at doing it. You'll, you may hear some Texas fans talk about QB play and some other stuff. Like 
that team is too good and their schedule is too easy for them to not get 11 to be in the fight to be into the big 12 title game with a shot if they win that of being in the playoffs and if they don't like it's a failure of a season period um the only other things that i would look at i owe you to me is a little too high and that i don't is get just it because i don't get it I, I, I don't get it that seems like a hey it's oklahoma and we trust the coach but they also like it was clear that it was very clear that he did not like he did not like the way that the offense hung the defense out last year. But they also can't you can't run that offense without running tons of tons right. of plays. I don't. I, I, it would be like asking Baylor's offense to all of a sudden like play it hurry up all the time. Like it just, well, it just wouldn't work. Need the clock every, like it just does, it fundamentally doesn't work. Yeah. And I I don't, it doesn't say they're going to be terrible again. I just don't see how they're number three. That that just doesn't make sense to me. Right. And then, um, to be frank, I actually think like I think Baylor's probably a hair too high. I don't like flagrantly disagree with it. I would put them a little lower. But then I also don't know who I would put over them because I think that there's because I look at Tech and like I don't think Tech is probably quite that good. But really, what it comes down to is it, it's it's really it's really Texas and it's everybody else. Like it's just from a talent level and from a gap level. Like I, there's gonna be there's gonna be that tier from like two to five that's gonna be a handful of teams, and we don't know who's gonna be in that quite yet. Um, Oklahoma might be in there. Baylor might be in there. Oklahoma State, I think, actually is like being undersold and has a chance to probably creep into that second tier. Kansas State is certainly there. We don't know who's going to really be in that tier. We just know that Texas is the queer number one. Like they're they are they're number one and in the category of their own. I don't know what that two through like five six really looks like. Yeah. Um, and I can like I can make a case for a bunch of teams. And I can make a case for like I can make a positive case for everyone. The only team that I would say for sure belongs in that second tier is Kansas State. And past that, I don't really know. Gotcha. That was all yeah. good stuff. Um, it'll be interesting. I'll have to see i'll have to do the math on it at some point this offseason but in previous years with the round robin format it actually made it kind of really easy to tier teams because you were basically predicting their record but now with the fact that so many teams aren't playing each other it'll be interesting to see how that affects the record stuff record stuff is going to be all jacked up because you're like everything nothing to use a math phrase like nothing's gonna be smoothly connected in this like the distribution here is gonna right. be a disaster like, wait what are the rules to make the title game this year there's no divisions or anything I have, yeah i don't I even know like i guess is it i don't know did they have to come i wonder if they had to come up with some new tie-breaking system i really have no idea so anyway i'll have to look at that it's it's gonna be it's gonna be nuts i just there's not i think we're gonna get a really good title game but i also i don't really know what to expect from from the last thing I'll say on on, all, on on the new teams, it's going to be interesting to see what those guys do in November because yeah. do they have like it's not you know Baylor is UCF's first home game that's going to be a really tough game. Yeah, that's going to be. What tough. does UCF look like in the middle of November when they've been playing against the a Big Twelve quality schedule for two full months and everybody is banged up? You know that is that's that's the question we don't really know like are those do those guys have the depth to be able to hang for uh for this many number of games and i just you know no one really knows like everyone's gonna everyone's gonna float an answer but there's not there is not going to be a single analyst that you talk to outside of the, the analyst for a team that's going to be able to accurately tell you what the second and third deep of ucf or byu or houston is really gonna be able to do i certainly can't do right it. Um, and so what like the quality of those kids is really what's going to determine how well those guys hang on for the entirety of this season, what they look like in November. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll wrap up with by saying I'm doubling down. Iowa State's going to be good this year. That's the only thing I'm going to 
finish with uh, after they ruined me last year. Um, but I'm still a believer in that staff and that team. I think they're going to be good. So I the only, my only caveat with them would be I with so many teams running, like emphasizing the run game, like Oklahoma State. God, he talked about this for a while. You look at what Baylor's doing. Like there are a bunch of teams that are going towards like getting more guys in the box and leaning on that heavy run. Uh-huh. What does it does Iowa Iowa State completely crack the RPO defense? Right. Does that does that scheme hold up if you're if you're running against a lot of like wide zone stuff? In if you're starting to see them crop up more, that that would be my only caveat on on Iowa State being able to make it because I think I do think they're going to be good this year, but you know we'll see. The whole league's gonna be good, so that's what's gonna be fun to see. Okay, um, signing off, Jeff. We'll uh, plan on doing another powwow probably in about a month or so, maybe when fall ball is getting started. Um, see how things are going. Start diving into some position previews and talk uh, talking about the Big Twelve some more. Um, any last words before we sign off, Jeff? Nah, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready for the. I'm ready for summer camp to start. I'm going to New Hampshire. I'm going to sit in a place where it's not six million degrees like it is in Dallas right now. And it's going to be fun. And you'll let me know what uh, Cincinnati's too deep is looking like. That'll be fantastic. You can do a deep write up on them. (laughs) All right, Jeff, take care. Well, uh, until next time.